In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. So as we all know, tomorrow is going to start the fast, uh, the three-day fast that we usually call Jonah's fast, um, which I think is more appropriately termed the Ninevites fast. Uh, but I, I thought to myself that I, I wanted to tie in a few things here today in terms of that fast and something else that we commemorated today and Jonah. Did anyone pay attention to the Synexar today and see what, what it was that we were commemorating? It was a big day. No? So today we commemorated the Second Ecumenical Council at Constantinople, which was in 381. And they discussed many different things at that council. Probably the chief thing that they ended up discussing was the personhood of the Holy Spirit and reaffirming the faith that he is uh, God, that the Holy Spirit is God. And I don't want to get into the dogmatics today. I think that that is a very good and deep and profound talk that we can get into because there's a lot of confusion about that for a long time. And out of the Trinity, he's probably the one that we speak about the least in terms of his personhood. And even the fathers of the church had things to say about that as well in terms of why it is that we have a tendency to speak about the Father and the Son so much and not so much about the Holy Spirit. And one of the fathers of the church actually said that uh, it's because he's so close to us and he's so active in our lives that you're not, you're not as acutely aware of him as you would be someone that you're just describing from afar. So if you, if you have someone that you know, you're relatively close to, like um, a friend of yours, and you want to speak about them and the great things that are about them, you'll always see the great things that are uh, characteristic of your friend that you don't see on a daily basis. But if you're constantly around someone, like for example, your spouse, this is, and I'm sure everyone notices in their marriage, in the beginning of marriage or in the beginning of a relationship, there's a lot of sweetness and romanticism and um, lots of talk of uh, the great things that this other person has, and then as the marriage continues, it's supposed to continue like that to a certain degree, uh, but oftentimes it doesn't, and you just get sort of caught up into the humdrum reality of sort of daily life. And that's how they describe things with the Holy Spirit as well, is that because the Holy Spirit is so close to us, is, is closer to us than even our spouse would be, uh, we don't describe him or we don't think about him uh, as acutely as we would, say, the Father or the Son. Uh, and so I don't want to go into too much detail about that, um, the doctrinal and dogmatic issues associated with the Holy Spirit, but I, I did want to speak about the role of the Holy Spirit that he has in our life with regards to vocation. And I, I chose this topic of vocation, of course, because we see with the fast of Jonah uh, approaching us tomorrow, Jonah is, is sort of the, the peak person that we always think about when we think of someone being called and resisting the call, someone that's called and resisting the call. Uh, obviously, with regards to many people that are in the New Testament, as this initial icon had showed, 
when Christ called many people, many people responded. And we have those very well documented, but many people didn't as well. But with Jonah, it's, it's very apparent. You have someone who's called to something, and through this calling, uh, tried to resist carrying out this, this vocation as much as possible. And so I wanted to speak about it in terms of our own life as well, and, and how it is that we end up dealing with the Holy Spirit and this talk of vocation as well. Right now in our, in our society, we have a very individualized society that has never existed before the way that it does now. <clears throat> used to be the case that you didn't have to wonder what it was that you were going to do for work when you got older because you just ended up working as whatever it was that your dad did, right? If your dad was a blacksmith, you're a blacksmith. If your dad was a farmer, you're a farmer. That's how it is that you would be trained. And even with regard, for example, to marriage, oftentimes it wasn't the thought of who is it that I'm going to get married to? Who is it that God is calling me to marry? How am I going to ascertain who's the, you know, the perfect match to uh, helps, uh, help me in my struggle to, to reach the kingdom of God? That, that wasn't even there, right? Most people didn't even meet their spouse until the day of their wedding. And so that thought didn't exist either. Whereas for us now, when we think about the things that God calls us to, when we think about our vocation, whether that's uh, the kind of work that we're supposed to do, or the person that we're supposed to marry, or uh, for the people that are younger that aren't here right now, and this is probably the most apparent uh, example that we have in most of our lives, is which college am I supposed to go to, right? Everyone's in high school, and they try to figure out which college they're supposed to go to, and they start praying, and they say, God, show me some sort of a sign. Tell me which way I'm supposed to go. And, and as a result of that, the way that, we, uh, the way that we deal with God is very much as though he is a slot machine. The way a slot machine works, as you all know, is you put a coin in, you, you try your luck, you pull down the handle, or you press the button or whatever it is that they have these days, and then you see whether or not God responds to your prayer. So you'll say, I, I, I want to pray to see whether or not you can give me some sort of clarity as to anything that I'm supposed to be doing in life, whether it's where I'm supposed to go to school, who I'm supposed to marry, what I'm supposed to do for work. And you spin the slot, and most of the time there's no answer. And so you say, okay, that coin didn't work. Let me see how, how many more coins I have with me right now that I can use. How many more prayers that I can put in until God responds to me. And then at some point, the amount of coins grows smaller and smaller and smaller, and then there's no more coins, which really means that we don't have any more patience. And so we say, the slot machine doesn't work, or it's not supposed to work right now, or, you know, the odds of him actually responding to me is, is so slight, just like the odds of winning the lottery or winning at the slots is very small. And so we just dictate our lives by this, right? We just go, and then we pray. We don't get the answer that we want most of the time. We don't get any answer. And so we just continue through life. But we only use him at times of confusion. And it's only in these really big things. So whenever, whenever there's this talk, and this talk is, I would say, usually very much geared towards people that are in high school. How do I know God's will? Whenever that talk is given, because of the big things that are coming up in, in that age group's life, that's the only thing that they end up focusing on, the really big things. But we forget what God's will is for us on a daily basis. 
So we only seek him out in times of confusion. This is Saint Ephraim the Syrian, and he says, in the measure to which a man cuts off and humbles his own will, he proceeds towards success. But insofar as he stubbornly guards his own will, so much does he bring harm to himself. Now that's very interesting because it seems like, and we're, and we're going to see this over and over and over again with the fathers, that the characteristic to be able to know God's will and to operate according to God's will is renouncing your own will. And I would say that it's probably very easy for us to shirk all of these kinds of quotes off and say, well, they're monks. These people were living in a different time than us. And we can't throw away our will the same way that they do. That's what monks do. They throw their will away. That's not what we do. Um, and so, again, we only seek him in times of confusion. And we can't hear him largely because we are not living a life that's according to the commandments. And this is the, the most important overarching thing that we should know. To know God's will, we have to live according to his commandments. To know his will, we have to live according to his commandments. That sounds like a very basic thing. It, it sounds like something that you would tell a child. And yet, these are the things that we don't do the most in our daily lives. We don't actually abide by his commandments the way that we're supposed to. And we're going to get into that a little bit. So again, God is revealed in his commandments. It says, this is Christ speaking in the Gospel of John. He says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. This is supposed to be the goal in our life, right? Is to love God and to feel like we are also being loved by God, right? Not sort of an emotional feeling, but to understand that God's providence is over all of us. And because we don't live a life that is according to his commandments, we're not aware of this. God's providence, his love, extends over to everybody, regardless of whether or not you love him back. He's still taking care of everybody. St. Isaac the Syrian, he says, the protection and providence of God extends over everyone, but the only ones who see this are those who cleanse themselves from sin. Those are the only ones that are aware of what it is that God is doing. And they're aware of it because they keep his commandments. Even if you don't keep his commandments, he still loves you. He's still looking out for you, still taking care of you, even if it's not necessarily in the way that you think it should be. And so we have here a quote. This is St. Justin Popovich, a recent saint from the Eastern Orthodox Church, who, by the way, got his PhD dissertation on St. Macarius. I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, it says, grace has been... Grace has been mystically bestowed on those who have been baptized in Christ. This grace becomes active in them to the extent that they keep the commandments. Grace never ceases to secretly help us, but it is up to us, as far as it lies within our power, to do good or not to do good. Now, this is a, a very interesting thing that I don't think many of us think about. When we think about God's role in our life, we'll say, okay, we receive the Holy Spirit when? When do we receive the Holy Spirit? Baptism and chrismation. Baptism and chrismation. And so we have the Holy Spirit for most of us since our birth, right? Since just a few months after we were born, we have the Holy Spirit, and yet we're not aware of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, right? We're not aware of his truly being a person in our life, just like 
what the fathers were discussing in the fourth century when they were discussing his personhood. We're not aware of it for a reason. And that reason is this. That's what St. Justin Popovich was saying, is that we don't keep his commandments. We're not living according to his way. What we end up doing is this. We live a very prodigal life. We live away from God on a very daily basis in the way that we uh, go about our daily interactions. And then for very, very specific things, we'll come to him and we'll say, God, give me the answer to your will for this. And he says, are you doing my will in the rest of the things that are very obvious that you're supposed to know about? And you say, I don't want to hear about that. I, I want you to help me with this point. And he says, okay, but what about everything else? He says, right, I understand. I understand that there's lots of commandments that we're supposed to do. Um, but I, I don't really want to pay attention to them. Why don't you just take me through my life the way that my life should go? Why don't you just make everything very easy? He says, well, do you read the Bible? And you say, what good is reading the Bible? What is that? If you come to church and you hear someone reading the Bible and you pay attention, either you won't pay attention and it just kind of goes over your head, or uh, you'll, you'll recognize the reading and you'll say, oh, yeah, I remember this when St. Paul spoke about that or when Christ spoke about that or something. And then you tune it out. You say, oh, I've, I've heard this one before, right? It's like a, it's like a replay, something that is just replayed over and over in the radio of church life. just happens over and over again. You say, I know this one. And then you start phasing out and you're paying attention to something else. And yet we're supposed to live according to the commandments to such an extent that God's will would be pervasive in our life. Our awareness of his will would be pervasive in his life. Even in his calling to tend to the flock of Christ, Christ asked St. Peter if he loves him, right? There is um, this idea that a vocation has to be very specific to me, and this is what I was alluding to earlier. Because we have this very individualized mentality now, where we want to see what God's plan is for who I'm supposed to marry, where I'm supposed to work, where I'm supposed to live, and just these sorts of big things, we all think that we also have a very special and unique individualized something that we're going to give, which is true to an extent, but it's not the same as when, when Christ calls, for example, people to uh, serve him in church in the priesthood. Even with that, when you see when he calls St. Peter to do that, he doesn't just say, go and serve my people. He doesn't say, go and tend my flock. What he says is, do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you, Lord. And then he says, then feed my sheep. Then do this. If you love me, then you're called to this. Now, we're all called to something, right? But that will, that personal will, that personal vocation that each of us has won't be realized unless that first part is realized, right? He's still going to take care of us. He still loves He's still providential towards us all. But that part is very, very important. Do you love me? And that is a really difficult question to be able to answer back to Christ, if we're honest. And yet when St. Peter answers it, he receives a calling. He receives something that is specific to him. The calling to follow Christ is universal. The calling to be sent by Christ for a particular work is preceded by an enriched with the love towards Christ. It is not a guarantee 
that if you love Christ, that he will call you to serve in his church, for example. That's not a guarantee. And we see that time again and again in, in the lives of the saints. Just because you really love Christ, or you imagine that you really love Christ, or if in fact you really do, that doesn't mean that suddenly you're entitled to a certain kind of vocation that you have in your mind. It doesn't mean because you are uh, growing in the faith and you're serving uh, in church and you're doing all of this stuff, that necessarily means that, that Christ will call you to his priesthood. Not going to happen, right? That calling is very specific for very specific people. But it is necessary that you love Christ to be called to whatever your calling is. So, which path do I take? What am I supposed to do? And I think that this is, again, a question that we ask when really big things happen. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd question because the question that we often ask is, where am I supposed to go to find God? If you're asking this to see what God's will is, it's supposed to be, where am I going to find God? Am I going to find him through this person? Am I going to find him through this job? Am I going to find him in this area where I'm going to live? Uh, and we always think outside of our circumstances, outside of what it is that we're in right now. Where do I go to find him? Where am I supposed to go on pilgrimage to find him? Do I go to Jerusalem? Do I visit, you know, the Church of the Holy Resurrection and I will find him there? Do I go to the monasteries in Egypt and I will find him there? Where am I going to find him? Um, and that's not the question that we're supposed to ask because it's not where do I go to find God, but how can I find God where I am? That living situation, whatever it is that you're living in right now, that's where you're supposed to find God. And that, in fact, is where God wants you to find him. Where it is that you are right now in life, with who it is that you're married to, with the kids that you have, with whatever struggles it is that you're going through, that's where God wants you to find him. It's not outside of that. And because we think it's supposed to be outside of that, our minds wander. Well, if it's not in this marriage... Let me go find something else that's going to be attractive to me outside of that so that I could see if he's there. But he's not there, right? There is, there is no God outside of your present circumstances. God is here in that, right? God is in the, the suffering that you're in right now that you say to yourself, well, I can't find him here. I wish my circumstances were different so that I can find him. And he says, you're supposed to find me right where you are. This is St. Syncletica. She is a giant of a mother of the church. This is one that we often don't speak about enough. St. Athanasius is, is said to have written uh, her life as well, so he wrote in the life of St. Antony and St. Syncletica. And this is one of her sayings, and I, I've always loved this saying. She says, There are many who live in the mountains and behave as if they were in the town, and they are wasting their time. There are many people that are monks that are out there in the desert that because of where it is that their heart is, where their mind is, they're wasting their time. It is possible to be a solitary in one's mind while living in a crowd. And it is possible for one who is a solitary to live in the crowd of his own thoughts. That's the crowd, right? It's possible for you, not to be a monk, to live just the, the exact same way that we all live right now and to find God in that. 
It's not the escape, and that's what she's saying here, right? It's not the escape to the desert that suddenly you're going to find God in the desert. That's a calling that some people have. That's not where we all will find God. And because we often think that that's where we're going to find God, because we might have heard of many people that find him there, that's where we think we're supposed to go. And we agonize over this all the time, right? We see other people that seem to have it all figured out. Their life is on the path that, at least from an outsider's perspective, looks like they're going straight to God, and it looks like they're doing his will. And you say, what is God's will in my life? What am I supposed to do? What is he calling me to in my own life? What is my own vocation? And your vocation is being exactly where it is that you are right now. To be able to live in the crowd of your thoughts. That's what she's saying, right? To be able to live amongst the temptations that go on in your mind that are calling you against finding God right where you are. And so instead of saying, for example, where, where is it that I can find God, maybe it resonates more if we say, where is it that I can find true peace? Or where is it that I can find true joy? Where, where can I find joy? Where can I find that? And again, we look in so many different places instead of looking in the circumstances that we're in right now. Sometimes it seems as though God disagrees with what it is that you think your life should, the direction that your life should be going in. It seems as though you'll say, I think that it's right for me to, for example, marry this person. I think it's right for me to marry this person. This is the person that I want to spend the rest of my life with. And for some reason, that doesn't end up working out. No good reason. No good reason. Something just completely breaks down. And you say, but I did everything right. I prayed, I fasted, I went to church. Everything in the relationship, I was doing it as honorably as possible. And suddenly, for some reason, this didn't work. Or the same thing with a job, right? Where we say to ourselves, well, if I'm very respectful and I'm very motivated and I show people my motivation, maybe then I can get that promotion. Or maybe people just start treating me a little bit better than what it is that they're doing right now at work. Right? And what we end up finding oftentimes, which frustrates many people to no end, is that the Spirit doesn't want that. The Holy Spirit doesn't want your life to go that way. And you say, why? It seems like that's what I'm supposed to do. We read this in the book of Acts, where it says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. That's all it says. They were forbidden to speak in Asia. Why were they forbidden to speak in Asia? What was it that they were so aware of that made them realize that they're not supposed to go to Asia, which is Turkey? The region of Ephesus is what they're, they're referring to here. Um, why couldn't they go there? I think when we read this, or when someone comments about this, what we think of is that the Holy Spirit made it abundantly clear to St. Paul. Holy Spirit appears to St. Paul, and he says, ah, I know you want to go to Asia, or you're not going to go to Asia, you're going to go to this other place. It's perfect. Now I know what it is that I'm supposed to do. And then we agonize again, and we say, God, why isn't it that you make it so obvious to me, right? Why can't you just give me direction like that? Like, St. Paul is doing this, and he's serving. I want to do good things too. I'm serving. And for some reason, you're not giving me that level of clarity. And when I think about this, I don't think that 
the clarity that they got was some sort of miraculous manifestation the way that we want it to be. I think probably, and this is my conjecture, I think probably what ended up happening was that they noticed that the circumstances around them were not allowing for it to happen. And because they saw God in the negative circumstances as well, they accepted it. They saw, for example, that they wanted to take a boat to get there or they wanted to you know, caravan over there or something, and it wasn't happening. Whatever it is that they were trying to do, it didn't work. And instead of saying, but God, I'm trying to do your will. I'm trying to take your word. I'm supposed to be an evangelist, right? I'm trying to take your word to people that need to hear your word. That's a very good thing. That's how I'm, I'm supposed to be living my life, right? Why isn't it that you're allowing me to go do that over there? That's not the way that they think, right? Because they had conformed their mind to be able to find God, not just in the positive things that he allows for, but in the things that he doesn't allow for. They saw the circumstances, all of their circumstances that they went through, they saw God's hand in that. And they said, this must be God's will. That is really challenging for us to be able to accept in our lives because we don't want to imagine that the suffering that we're going through right now is where it is that we're going to find God. We don't want to imagine that even our, our best of intentions when they're rejected is what God wants. For example, in a marriage, if you do many, many great things and you're working around the house and you're, you're, you're doing everything that you can and for some reason, the other person just doesn't appreciate it or they don't think of it or they don't tell you anything, you say, of course that can't be God's will. There's no way that that's God's will, right? I'm doing really, really good. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing here. And for some reason, it's just not resonating with the other person. That other person must not be doing the will of God, but I'm doing the will of God. So I'm the martyr. I'm the one that's suffering. I'd venture to say probably that maybe most, if not all married people think this way, right? There's, there's, and those people that say not me, God bless you. Uh, you're probably sitting right next to your wife. So, um, but that's the way that we think because, because it's so challenging for us to be able to say, maybe the way that it's going is the way that it's supposed to go for me to find God in that. Maybe I'm supposed to find God in my suffering, not just in the doors that he's opening for me to get out of my suffering. This is St. Siloam the Athenite, again, a very recent Eastern Orthodox saint. He says, how can you find out if you are living within the will of God? Here is the sign. If you are troubled about anything, what a condition. If you are troubled about anything, this means that you have not completely given yourself over to the will of God. That's rough, because we're probably all troubled by many things, right? So he says, if you're, if, if you're troubled by anything, you have not given your, your will completely over to God. A person who lives in the will of God is not concerned over anything. And if he needs anything, he gives both it and himself over to God. 
And if he does not receive the necessary thing, the thing that you think is necessary, what you think is going to bring you joy, what you think is going to bring you closer to God, if you don't receive that thing that you think is necessary, he remains calm nevertheless as if he had it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine praying to God, asking him for something wholeheartedly? I really want you to do this. And then he says no, and then you're still as happy as you would be had he given it to you? That's really high spirituality, right? The soul which has been given over to the will of God is afraid of nothing, not of thunder nor of thieves, nothing. But whatever happens, she says, thus it pleases God. Whatever happens, it says, thus it pleases God. Terrible things, you get fired, you have a very abusive relationship, you have any of these things, which is very unfortunate, to say the least. None of those things are good by any measure that we have, right? But what if that negative issue is what will bring me closer to God? What if that's what pleases God? That's problematic for many of us, I would say, right? Again, because there's so many things that seem so negative that we don't want to accept. We don't want to accept that we can find God through that. That doesn't mean that God is causing those things. That doesn't mean that the negative circumstances, the abusive relationship, the, uh, whatever it is that you're, that you're in, that God is saying, ah, this, this is the perfect route for you to be able to find me. So, suffer. That's not what it is that's being said. What's being said is, is that God will allow himself to work even through all of the negative things that people want to do to get you away from him. All of the negative circumstances that are around you, whether it's in your marriage or in your health or anything, all of these negative circumstances, he says, I will work through this so that you can find me very clearly through this if you want. If she is sick, she thinks this means that I need to be sick or else God would not have given it to me. Thus peace is preserved in both soul and body. Again, a very heavy thing to hear. And, and, and it shouldn't be made light, right? You're not going to walk away from today and say, ah, this is the way that I should conform my mind to be. Therefore, I'm going to live according to this. And then we come all next week and we have halos glowing around our heads and we're just floating when we pray during the liturgy. Probably not going to happen. But this is what we're supposed to aspire to. Because through something like this, through this experience, this is, this is a saint that he himself experienced many, many, many sufferings, right? And what he came to discover in his experience, in that wisdom, was that he found God in the midst of those sufferings. It's not, again, because God sent those sufferings. It's because God worked through them. Does that make sense? I'm sure for the people that it's very problematic for, they have many things to say. And so we're going to go through two more slides, and then you guys can completely unleash on me if you'd like, okay? Um, and so we have this struggle. Again, a very hard saying here. It says, trials show the way 
not the path of ease. Most of the time we're trying to find whatever it is that's going to be the easiest for us. Especially in a job, for example. Where is it that I'm going to be able to sleep the longest in the morning and then I can start at 9 a.m. and then I'm going to go over there and I'm going to have assistance and they're going to treat me very well and I'm, they're going to give me tons of money and everything is just going to be so smooth. Where is this perfection going to happen? Where is this spouse, this magical spouse that's going to appear, that's going to give me everything that I need in my life with all of my, my own psychological shortcomings? Where is this magical person going to come from? Trials show the way, not the path of ease. St. Isaac the Syrian, he says this. He says, whenever in your path you find unchanging peace, beware. You are very far from the divine paths trodden by the weary feet of the saints. For as long as you are journeying in the way to the city of the kingdom and are drawing nigh to the city of God, this will be a sign for you. This is the sign. The strength of the temptations that you encounter. That's how you know that you're getting closer, because the temptations become harder. And the nearer you draw nigh and progress, the more temptations will multiply against you. Again, this is a saint that's saying this, right? St. Isaac the Syrian, who we think when he's writing this is above all of these temptations, right? But of course that can't be true because he's a saint and he's the one that's writing this. That must mean that he's acutely aware of the fact that he has a tremendous amount of temptations, more so than when he started off his spiritual life as a monk or when he became a bishop or when he went back into the monastery. Any of those things. He saw the trials and the temptations multiplying and through his experience, he can write that. Not because he's out of them, but because he's right in the middle of them. Whenever, therefore, you perceive in your soul diverse and stronger temptations in your path, know that at that time your soul has in fact secretly entered a new and higher level. That should be some comfort. The fact that the temptations are getting harder, the fact that even the psychological strain, the emotional strain, the physical strain, all of it is getting harder and harder and harder, he says, that is the sign that you're getting to a new level. And so we find, in any circumstance, we should be able to determine what our vocation is. Not what am I supposed to do for work, or where am I supposed to go to college, or who am I supposed to marry, even though those things are important. But in the daily things, how can I find God in my marriage? Again, the way that you find God's will is by keeping his commandments, right? That's what we said. Those who keep his commandments, those are the ones that are living according to the will of God. And those are the ones that are aware of the will of God. And so, what you should see is when you see these commandments that are in the New Testament, see whether or not you're living according to them. Make them personal. So that when you read 1 Corinthians 13 and you think about your marriage, you think to yourself, am I patient? Am I kind with my spouse? 
Am I long-suffering? Am I irritable? Am I resentful? That's 1 Corinthians. That's where you find God. You find it in the midst of that, where you say, ah, oh, this is not going according to plan. This is not what it is that I wanted. Shouldn't God give me a lot more peace than this? And he says, I'm giving you opportunities. There are opportunities here that are present for you that you can find me in, that you can, you can show how you can grow in patience and kindness and love. How do you find God at work? Through ease or through, through laziness or through money? How many times, this is something that I'm, I'm vocal about whenever it is that work starts getting really hard, I start thinking to myself, look at the people that are over in Europe. Those people barely work. They take like three-hour breaks in the middle of the day. They're living life. Those people are living life. And, and in fact, when I, speak to, when I speak to the dentists that are doing the same thing that I do here over there, um, and they're doing it way better than I'm doing it, they're also not working as much as I'm working. And say, so, what kind of life is that? That's where I want to go. Like, let me just move to Sweden or something. And I, you start trying to find it in ease and laziness. Or... Is it going to be that you find God by turning the other cheek? Are you going to find God at work when someone is disrespectful to you? When someone embarrasses you? When you're asked to forgive? Not forgive like we used to think when someone is going to come up to you and say, I'm sorry, and say, oh, okay, I'm sorry too. When someone really does something against you and they're unrelenting, can you forgive? That's where you find it, in all of those circumstances. So you, you test the truth of your ability to keep the commandments. And through that, you will find that the will of God is pervasive in your life. So that it's no longer, what is it that God wants of me? It is, what is it that God wants of me in this particular situation that I'm in? in whatever struggle it is that I'm in. How can I find him there? And he will always be there. Question. Yeah, I see. I think both of those things are very related to each other and I think that it's not it's not fair to us or to our humanity to say that we can't feel troubled or we can't feel like we're suffering or it's wrong to feel like we're suffering or it's wrong to feel like we're troubled those things are realities that we have right even Christ felt troubled and thank God that he did and that they wrote it so that we know that that is normal for human beings to feel I, I, I can't give a very distinct difference between feeling troubled and feeling suffering because we are supposed to be a, an integrated unit. We're not schizophrenic, right? We're supposed to be an integrated unit so that when my body suffers or when my mind suffers or when my soul suffers or when I'm, I'm in a bad emotional spot or a psychological spot, all of those things are me. That's me suffering, right? And so it's not that God... 
I like how it just kept going, too. That was, that was a good part. It's not just that, that God is, is particularly after relieving a certain kind of suffering. It's, it's to find him in all of that. Sure, sure. So troubled in this particular situation, what that means is the kind of trouble that you would feel when you are not willing to accept your circumstances. That kind of trouble is something that I, I myself go through on a daily basis, where I feel like I don't want to accept what it is that I'm in. And I don't want to, what that really means is that I don't want to accept that I can either find God through this circumstance or that God sent this circumstance to me. I don't want to accept either of those. And it might, it has to be one of those things, right? It's either that I will find him in it or he sent it to me so that I can find him in it. One of those two. The temptations get worse. Yeah. Sure. So, though the temptations get worse, the trouble gets less, which is counterintuitive because that's not the way that we like to think about the spiritual life. For example, when you see someone like St. Anthony the Great, when it gets to the point where the demons are coming and physically attacking him and all of this, right? We all know the story, and they're going through and they're doing that to him. And then he's troubled through it, right? He ends up asking God, where were you in the middle of that? And God tells him, I was there with you the whole time, right? That's what it is that he tells him. Now, at that time, St. Anthony is not what we think of as St. Anthony the Great that is on the peak pinnacle, right? He's still growing. He's still growing. And so he still has to reconcile within himself through life's experiences, through these spiritual struggles, through this even these physical attacks, to be able to figure out that God is there. And that's why God told him that. So that he can finally get to the point where he can trust. You can see in the middle of temptations that you can still trust in the middle of the temptations. Sam. I don't think that it's apathy because it's not just not reacting to it, right? It is finding God in the middle of that, right? That's different. That, that, that's, that's exactly the opposite of apathy. It's being able to say that this is actually good for me somehow, right? So it's not getting to the point, again, from a psychological standpoint, that someone can come up to you and slap you and you have no emotional response, I would say that that, 
that would be a, a significant psychological issue that that person would end up having, right? But that's why these things don't stand in isolation, right? It has to be integrated so that you can see that what you're progressing to is not just quieting down my own thoughts, my own reactions, my own um, way of encountering the kinds of temptations that are coming at me. It is that I'm, I'm, again, I'm not just attenuating that, I'm trying to find God in the middle of that, right? So there's a growth that's there. That's the trajectory, the growth towards that, towards accepting not just your situation, but accepting that God is in that situation. I would say that that's very different. Yeah. So the, the yeah. So the question is, what if you're the one that messed up and you brought it on yourself, or even if it's a guilty mess up? He's saying if it's an innocent mess up and and you brought it on yourself and now this is what it is that you have to to live through. Uh, you will still always find God in the middle of anything, right? There's never going to be a situation where it gets bad and then God says. This will never happen. God will never say, well, I mean, you asked for it, so sorry. You deal with this on your own. But you know what? That, that, that one was really bad. Let me at least take care of your, uh, your ability to eat. Let's do that one. But this one that you brought on yourself that's really bad, whether by innocence or by guilt, he'll still be found in that. Yeah, of course. Of course. And I think that that is what um, the monks very acutely are aware of is that we bring on a lot of things onto ourselves and thank God, not only that he's very merciful, but that he's so loving that it's not just your external circumstances that are happening that would allow for you to see him in the midst of those, but it's also your own internal shortcomings. You know, like, I'll give you an example for myself. When I was, like, 15 years old, I, and I would go to confession, you're not, you know how Buna's not supposed to tell your confession? You're also not supposed to say your confession. That's what I'll say. Um, I would go to Abuna and I'd say, like, Abuna, I'm, I'm proud. I'm a proud person. Um, I don't know how I'm proud, but I'm sure it's there. Like, I just, I just, I'm sure. Uh, and then as I've grown older and older and older, I've been able to see more and more and more situations where that manifests itself, where I can bring that onto myself. And it's, I, I would say, uh, this is not to my credit, this is actually to my demise, but this is just to show God's glory here, is that he shines light on us so that you see more and more of your shortcomings, both the ones that you brought onto yourself, both the ones that are, are just um, inclinations of our fallen nature that are specific to myself, uh, and the things that I've brought on very willingly, which is why prayers that when we say those things voluntary and voluntary, consciously and unconsciously, take on a different meaning when you put them in this frame. Because it's not just those things that come innocently, it's also the things that I very aggressively grab onto and I say, God, I don't want to let go of the sin. This is really great. And I'm struggling in this, but you can try to help pry my fingers away from it.
I really want to hold on to it, but just try a little. He's, of course. And he tries, and he's like, nah, not yet. Uh, but he's still there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think it was St. Gregory the theologian that said um, Jonah was not Jonah was not so spiritually inexperienced so as to be able to say uh, I can run away from God. Someone that he chooses to be his prophet. Someone that he chooses someone that he chooses to be his prophet is not so spiritually inexperienced as to be able to say, oh yeah, if I get on a boat and I go to Tarshish instead, I'm going to be able to escape from God, right? It's just that, just like what Jonah did, I also don't want to do things that God tells me to do. And God says, okay, uh, but we're still going to do it. And he says, I will train you and we'll show everybody that this is how the spiritual life goes. And thank God for that book. Other questions? Yeah, it would be nice, right? The question is, why can't you just see God in a very easy life? Uh, because he didn't have an easy life, right? He showed us the path that we're supposed to go through. I'm pointing at the cross right now, right? That's the, that's the path. That's the path of the Christian. Um, I'm sure that it would have been very possible for him to say, I'll be born in a palace, and people will take care of me and tend to me, and I will just have everything, and it will be all easy, and then I'll show everybody's love by giving them money and prestige and all of this stuff, and then die and r rise from the dead and say, that's how you're supposed to live your life. But that's not what he showed us. What he showed us was, was that our spiritual life is in the cross. And our lives, whether we like it or not, are going to be filled with crosses. And he says, that's why I went onto the cross, so that I can be there in each of yours as well. Other questions? And glory be to God for everyone. Let's stand up to pray. Arch.